on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Save big money on your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Some pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast-iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards. And don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Getting together to talk about all the things we used to do. The laughs, the passions, the little Sebastians, the pets with belly. Putting it all in a podcast Then we'll send it up into the sky We're calling it Parks and Recollection Come on, little podcast Spread your wings and fly Hello, everybody. Welcome to Parks and Recollection. Uh, I'm Rob Lowe, along with Alan Yang. What's up, everybody? We've got a good episode for you today. This is the famous beauty pageant, episode three of season two. It aired on October 1st, 2009, written by the great Katie Dippold. Katie Dippold, old dips, dips in the mix. Great writer, just a funny, wonderful writer. And Jason Walliner directed it. Um, How would you describe this episode, Mr. Yang? Man, I don't know about you. I felt like watching this, it was like, it was fast, it was funny, it was firing all cylinders. Immediately, the very first shot of the episode for the first time that I, I I think everyone is in their traditional places, just on the yeah. set. Like, people aren't scattered in different offices or whatever. Like, everybody's sort of in that bullpen weird area, and Donna's at her, the desk that she knows, and Jerry is sitting right there at that table doing God knows what Jerry always does. And it just felt like that's what, that's what you yeah. want. When Leslie came in and announced what was going on, she was announcing it to the gang, quote-unquote, the gang. So this is sort of the beginning, I think, of of the gang. We figured out that the workplace comedy should have a workplace where the characters are. <laughs> so that's a, that that helped, right? They're all in the same place. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just felt like we we're in a groove. And and yeah, in this episode, we're going to talk about the inspiration for this episode, what it was like to write it, the evolution of Andy and Anne. Why don't I go through a, a synopsis of the episode? How about that, Rob? Take us away. All right, so Leslie's excited to have been ju- chosen to judge the Miss Pawnee beauty pageant, a job she takes very seriously. Tom, excited at the idea of judging women on looks, pulls some strings to get a spot on the judging panel along with Leslie. April enters the contest solely for the shot at a $600 prize. Later on, Pawnee police officer Dave Sanderson visits Leslie at work to ask her out on a date. While she says yes, she realizes they don't have a lot in common, so she hesitates on firm plans. Meanwhile, in the B story... Anne and Mark continue to casually date and have dinner at her house. That night, the date goes well until Anne finds out Andy has been living in the pit outside her house this whole time. (laughs) Classic moment. Although she's angry, eventually Anne and Mark let Andy join them for an awkward dinner to keep him out of the rain. 
Leslie and Tom butt heads during the competition. Leslie favors the smart and accomplished Susan, while Tom bases his vote on hotness. April quits when she finds out the prize was actually just gift certificates for a fence company. After the contest, the judges deliberate. Tom and the other judges all immediately agree Trish, the quote-unquote hot one, should win. The guy says it's the hot one, literally says it's the hot one, bypassing all of Leslie's efforts for Susan to win. At the end of the episode, Dave the cop finds Leslie at the pageant and asks her again on a date. Although she hesitates, Leslie appreciates when he bumps into Trish without much notice, ignoring the hot one, basically. Later in her office, Leslie makes plans with Dave for a date, and he tries to impress Leslie by showing he's memorized the names of all the female politicians who have pictures up in her office. And that's the episode. Well, listen, notwithstanding that this episode is is virulently anti-hot people, <laughs> um, there's a lot of funny stuff in this. I liked when they said they were going to judge the contestants based on talent and poise, and, and Tom Haverick goes, talent and poise? That's the strip club by the VA hospital. And then he mentions the Glitter Factory, which I believe just keeps coming up again in conversation later and later in the, in the series. But yeah. Doesn't the Glitter Factory ev- eventually explode? <laughs> or am I making that up in my own head? I don't remember. Greg, do you remember the gl- Glitter Factory exploded? <laughs> There's something like that. I forget. Hey, guys. What I believe you're thinking of is the Glitter Bomb that's going to go off at the Glitter Factory. It's not an actual bomb. And I don't want to give too much away because it's in an upcoming episode. Um, but when it comes to... a Pawnee explosion. We do know about the bread factory explosion that uh, sent the smell of toast throughout the air, and uh, people said it was quite delicious. So that's what I have for you on that. The other thing about this episode, it's super funny, but it also is, to me, one of the episodes that encapsulates best kind of where we've grown and changed as a society. Did you notice that? Because it's so much about you know, like you said, hotness and beauty pageants and all that stuff, and all that stuff is changing. My thing during this episode is, man, it's Leslie's attitudes in all of these episodes. It's like almost like she's a time traveler because she has the attitudes kind of we have now. She's like, is she from yes. the future? Because everyone else is acting scummy. <laughs> it's like, man, you can't believe the shit they're doing. It's like even the cameraman like pans down to like ogle a woman. It's like, you can't do that. And Leslie's basically saying you can't do that. But again, it's 2009. And so she's almost having the attitudes that people have now. So It, it is. She's very much the, the avatar of, of things to come. Yeah, in in this show, I think the idea of a beauty pageant in general was such such ripe territory because it gets to show all of these characters' attitudes very clearly. Yeah. Right in the A story, That's you right. have Leslie, Tom, and April, and you just see, you know, all of them express who they are with this as the setting. And that's a great, that's, that's why, you know, p- settings are chosen for a reason, right? So you get to see Leslie be a feminist. You get to see her sort of get across what she thinks, you know, women should be judged by. You see April kind of be chaotic and enter just for money and then be really funny as a contestant. And you get to be, t- you get to show Tom have his very retrograde attitudes. And so they're all very on character. And when you're early on in a show, a story like this allows you to, to see who the characters are and, and be funny. Was there also a notion that, um, I'm, I'm trying to think back to 2009, there was that hilarious moment where some teen miss beauty pageant girl and she literally could not string sentences together. So it was partially based on this very specific pageant. It was Miss Teen USA 2007, Miss South Carolina. People out there in our nation don't have maps, and uh, I believe that our ed- education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and... Thank you very much, South Carolina. By the way, the host, 
our very own Mario Lopez. <laughs> I don't know why I said. I don't know why I said our very own. He, he doesn't belong to me, but it, it just seems like uh, he's yeah. everybody. He belongs to everybody. He belongs to America. He belongs to the world. He belongs to the world. Truly. I apologize to you, Miss South Carolina. I know there's a lot of pressure up there, but man, that is that is. She basically said people don't have maps, and the question was about American education, and and uh, I, literally, like I'm reading what we wrote into the script, and it's actually arguably more intelligent than what she said. So, it's been a long time since I've seen you act. Give me a little. Uh, come on. So the question is. Leslie asks, how can we improve on the great American experiment? And this is what Trish Yanetta says. Well, I think that America is the land of the free, which is a wonderful thing, and also the brave, where people can live. And no one can ever take that away from you, and it never gives up. But the high birthing rate of immigrants frightens me. No offense to anyone out there, <laughs> but if it were up to me and my family, I would actually call it our America and not their America. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's pretty great. So it's it's actually more it's in, more intelligible and more uh, more uh, uh, sort of racist, maybe in a, in a vague sense. But yeah, this is like a little more overt. I like when she comes out for her talent with a with a baton and and it, Amy's she's not even twirling it. She's really just stretching with it. I remember how funny that was. Yeah, I think I got pitched in the writers' room and it was like, oh, this is going to be really funny. And then we just on the day we just I guess they just had her just you know, hold the baton and move her body around and did not even throw it in the air. So. It's it's actually am- amazing. And I I felt bad for the the character that Leslie was advocating for in the sort of 12 angry men jury scene, which also made me laugh. The, you know, that she's the holdout in, in, in the jury. I, and I wondered if that's how it went, how it goes in those holdout in the juries where the one person just keeps asking for a vote, the vote goes against them. What do you do? Then you ask for another vote and the vote goes against you? Like, it's it's what does it hilarious. Add? I was I, I, like the closest analogy I can make from my personal experience. I was once on a jury for the Tribeca Film Festival, and it was it was very much like that. You watch all these films, and you go into a room, and you're sequestered. And one of the other jurors was a was an actress that I actually knew, and she came in real hot. She you know she it was it, it, she came in. We all sat down. She's like, it's gotta be this one. It's this one. Like it's definitely this one. Like. It's the best movie. And then we went around, we each picked one, right? And then by the end, it was clear that the majority was picking this other one. And we expected this long, protracted fight like the one in the episode, but it came back around to this actress and she was like, okay, yeah, that's great. We can do that one. Let's, let's go. <laughs> it, was one of my, it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Super unintentional comedy from her because she was so passionate and she had such a personal connection to this other film, but then it was over immediately. It's like, she just wanted to go home and get dinner or something. So it was the opposite of this. But no, in this one, Leslie is just, kind of really uh, uh, really digging her heels in. And yeah, it's, it's a nice, it's, the episode's packed because you, you know, it, it is a, like kind of a 12 Angry Men parody in some ways. I love that the, it's sort of a forerunner to the Ron Swanson Pyramid of Greatness, which is one of my favorite things Classic of all time. Classic episode. That's, that's in an episode that, that has my name on it. So yeah, it, that was a fun one. Oh, yeah. Mr. Yeah. Yang, you've created something super yeah, special. No and we'll get to I that. take no credit. But yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's coming up. So yeah. But the, the forerunner to that is is the uh, the checklist that Amy has for who she thinks should win in the categories, and um, my favorite obscure it's an actual category Super. that Leslie N- Nope has the Naomi Wolf factor made me laugh out loud. It's such an obscure joke. It's really really funny. We did a whole talking head basically for this Naomi. For those of you who don't know. 
Naomi Wolf, a leading spokeswoman of the third wave of the feminist movement. So she's a she's a journalist. You know, she's she's the author of the beauty myth. But but yeah, I mean, putting that in a network comedy is pretty ballsy, right? It's like you're you're expecting your audience to have sort of this elevated education. So that was kind of funny that that's in there. And this is the difference. If you ever wondered what what the difference between a person who went to Harvard, like um, Alan Yang, and a person who didn't go to college at all, like me, is that his when we talk about Naomi Wolf. He gives you that answer. <laughs> if you ask me about Naomi Wolf, I go, she's the one that told Al Gore to wear more earth colors in his presidential campaign. Man, that's a good pull. I didn't remember that. <laughs> that was that was her contribution. Maybe if he had listened, he would have won. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I thought it'd be fun to call out all of the scorecard categories that Leslie had. Um, I was checking the list. We have teeth, interior life, knowledge of herstory, presentation, intelligence, fruitful gestures, lack of ostentation, je ne sais quoi, uh, the aforementioned the Naomi Wolf factor, voice modulation, and just a section for miscellaneous notes. Um, It's a weird thing on the prop, je ne sais quoi is actually spelled je ne sais quio, which I think is just silly. Um, but beyond that, I was sort of thinking about our time in the writers' room coming up with these categories, and I definitely agree that this is def- the, that this is a precursor, in a way, to the Swanson Pyramid of Greatness, which Alan, I think you remember, we spent maybe several days on. <laughs> yeah, much to my happiness, there was a mural um, moment. Apparently, the mural was, I can't believe I can't believe I'm going to say this. The mural was called um, a lively fisting. If I'm not mistaken. Got renamed, but but what used to be called a lively fisting. Yes, that is included in the episode somehow. (laughs) I like the Dave Cop character, the reveal that he's not Amy's intellectual equal. Dave says, oh, is is that your grandma? Um, It's Madeline Albright. He goes, oh, her name is Madeline Albright. (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh, it's I, so I just, good. I just call mine Nana, but yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I think the other thing, like watching this episode just takes me back to kind of the different atmosphere in season two in the writer's room because we had new people in the room. Obviously, Katie Dippold, who, who wrote this episode, who's gone on to write Ghostbusters and The Heat and, you know, all these movies. She's a big movie writer now. She's writing some, I think she's writing The Haunted Mansion for Disney now. Um, but we also added Harris Whittles. We added Aisha Muhar. We added Mike Scully. I mean, think about all those writers. They stayed on for almost the entire run of the show, all of those people. And there's a range, you know, there's young, there's there's more experienced They're all super funny and super good energy in the room. And I actually highlighted some of the lines that I could be wrong, but I remember them writing. Like there's, there's a a Whittles line that I think it's like, it's Pratt. He wrote a lot of Pratt stuff because he loved writing like, you know, dumb guy jokes. And he's screaming like, are we going to talk about anything other than the lies that I told you? Like that's very Whittles. (laughs) Like that's very Harris. (laughs) Like that's like, and then there's a, a joke that we used to call like a Scully joke. Like we literally had a term for it. It's an April talking head. She says, you know, she quits, and then she has a talking head that says, I may not have won, but at least I didn't make any new friendships. And it's like, that is the, the, the economy. So Scully, you know, wrote for The Simpsons. He, he used to run the show and, you know, just super experienced and had the most 
laser beam focused eye on jokes and economy of words. So he would he would have a setup and 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 a turn, and it would all happen in twelve words or something. So we used to call some of those like Scully jokes, and and sometimes we would try to pitch them, but no one could do it as well as he could. And 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 yeah, he became one of Amy's favorites too. And we ended up putting him in the show. He plays a character named Pearl who sometimes goes to town halls and is just says a one crazy joke and sits down. So so he was a great addition to the show. And and I want to credit uh, you know Katie and Aisha too because again I, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but in a show with a female lead, a female friendship as its center, and this one especially, which is a kind of about the male gaze and about a feminist response to that, you know, it helps to have women in the room. And and the staff was, I think, at this point, probably fifty percent women, which really helped. And, and Katie has her name on the script, obviously. So, but but Katie and Isha both really great with story, really great with jokes, and 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 it was evidenced by you know the, their continuation of their careers. So I could feel those writers. I could feel the fun we were all having in the room. And I actually was talking about this one more quick anecdote. I was in my writers' room yesterday for my new show, and. And remember, Greg, I wanted to talk to you about this. At a certain point, Greg, Greg was in the room. He's a script coordinator, and he became a writer in later seasons. But at the time, what season was it that you started to have sound effects? So in the writer's room, you're talking all the time. And then at a certain point, you play sound effects. At a certain point at Parks and Rec, it was like a, a morning zoo radio show where everyone had their oh. own theme song, and they were running bits. And so I was talking to my co-creator on the show, Matt Hubbard, who came and write, wrote for Parks season seven. And he said, I came in there, and I did not understand anything that was happening. It was a circus because you would walk in and, you know, I would pitch a joke and then Greg would play my theme song and then Harris would pick a joke. He would play and he would play his theme song and they were running bits. Mike sure would go off on a rant. You know, I don't, you know, Rob, you've probably heard Mike go off on something political or something about sports or something. Yeah. And, 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 and Greg would start playing, what would you play? Like the battle hymn of the Republic or something. It was like ramping up dramatic music and it would, and he wouldn't even notice. And then it would start playing and everyone would laugh because it would always diffuse the situation. Right. It was, it was, so funny what were what were some of the sound effects that that people had and who's do you remember who had what theme song what what were all the theme songs what, like I, I forget some of them oh it's, harris's was the seinfeld theme song so he would pitch a joke and go it's like what is happening yeah you know it's when i became a writer after a while but when i was a script coordinator writer assistant you spend a lot of time listening and taking notes and i wanted to have a voice somehow in the room and so i i I realized i could do it with sound effects and bits and so my favorite first one was i added a doorbell sound whenever someone would come in and uh very mild start right you ease your way which is funny because like it would also be yeah (laughs) um but it was a nice way for the room to say oh someone's here i should turn and look at the door um but yeah uh Yang, you were talking about this. I had definitely had Battle Him of the Republic playing for Mike whenever he would go on a very long rant about something so specific and you would see everybody's eyes kind of glaze over out and he would slowly <laughs> rise and every so often after about 30 seconds, he would realize it was playing and turn yeah. to look at both disdain and like total comedy appreciation. Yeah, because that's that's what it was. I was talking about that, and all the other writers on my new show were like, "Why did he fire you?" I was like, "Because he was a very tolerant guy. <laughs> he, was, he appreciated them." Oh, another one I love was Morgan Sackett, who was our line producer, who, who was brilliant. But he would come in, and he, you know, he's usually going to come in and talk about the budget or something didn't work or whatever. So, so Greg would play uh, the Star Wars Darth Vader theme, right? Did wasn't that? Or, or... <laughs> yeah, when he would walk in, and then whenever he would speak, I would play the theme song from The Omen. Yeah, that's another one. Oh, <laughs> amazing. And by the way, he's he's the nicest man in the world, which is makes it even funnier. I know we had 
Goron and my favorite Gore, uh, Dan Gore theme song was definitely, um, uh, uh, it was the Masterpiece Theater. Yes, song. yes. Because he's a very he fancy a man. Wonderful he's a very way. elevated, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's very um, high-spoken, well-spoken, and, and he would just say that thing that needed that stinger afterwards. Those yes. are definitely my favorites. Um, and it just kept, it kept going to the point that I used to play it out of iTunes, and then I bought myself uh, an application on my computer that I could play it with the keystroke because they were coming so fast. It's it's true madness. Yeah, he had a soundboard app, but I mean, you can imagine that it just takes the it takes the you know it, it takes the shit out of you, right? It take it takes the punch out of you if if Gore's talk it goes off and talks about the opera or something like Dan Gore's like if you know he talks about the opera and then you know Greg plays masterpiece masterpiece theater. It's like yeah, you have a sense of humor about yourself, but yeah, it that's a. I want to be in that writer's I, room. It's never, it's never happened in any of the writer's room. <laughs> so credit to Greg that I've been in. But yeah, it was very fun. Also, wasted a ton of time, but whatever. It's, it's nice when you've been on a show for that long. And this was ba- basically like later seasons. I mean, when we were sort of you know, messing around a little more. But man, how fun. See, I think sound and soundboards are very underutilized. I think they should be, they could be brought into so many different worlds. Um, I, the, like on an actual shooting set, the, you know, it's the it's, it's same as the writer's room in that the hours are long. There's a lot of time thinking, a lot of time waiting, and then you have it's punctuated by a, a, a certain amount of, of of actual acting and action. Um, Mike Myers on Austin Powers used soundboard, and it was the greatest thing ever. Like we would be sitting around waiting for the camera to be set up, and and Mike would just kind of rate. He would literally, and I never knew how the sound guy knew. And Mike would like raise his finger, and you'd hear the beginning of Car Wash. How how did he know? So when, so you'd hear and and that clapping beginning of car wash was the, the like the kind of okay let's go uh, anytime you're ready we're ready to do like that's whenever it was a little bit of boredom car wash would 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 play and and then there were other sound things and and I don't know how they had they had like an ESP thing going on it was one of the f- most fun cool things ever the other thing I think about is you as a baseball fan Alan um, you know people have walk up songs. Yes. In certain stadiums, a player has a, a song to walk up to. So this is really, it's all the same conversation. Yeah, I'm always thinking what would be, what would be a, your, what, what would be your walk-up that's, song? That's so funny. Yeah. I remember very, like, I remember reading about other people's walk-up songs and it's usually like, you know, it's a mix like really hard hip hop or like a country song or something. And then I remember Hideki Matsui was a Japanese player and he would come up to, uh, Clocks by Coldplay, just like the softest song. Like not, not even trying to. I was like, that's really intimidating for the yeah, for for the pitchers. Like, oh my god, Chris Martin's coming up to bat. But I, that always made me laugh. I was like, why did he choose that song? It's so funny. That's really funny. That's really funny, man. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I guess you have to go with something hard, right? You know, I don't know. What would you What would you pick? What was Alan's theme song? Great. We didn't get Alan's. Theme oh yeah, song. What, 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 did, I don't what, know the name of it. It was just like kind of something with like some weird. Sw- he would play when I did pull ups. It was like kind of like a weird swaggery song or something. It was like a jazz like Tin Pan Alley weird thing yeah that but yeah it, it stuck for years which is so funny on May 10th Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. 
Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You know, the B story is interesting because we're putting chess pieces into position, right? We're putting them into place. I think there's an Andy Ann Mark sort of love triangle going on. And I think, you know, I think we were figuring out what we had in Pratt, which is this secret weapon who's super likable. And like, we're like, maybe we shouldn't make him a super unlikable character when he's a super likable guy. So he has kind of a cute moment at the end. He's living in that tent. I thought it was just so adorable when he's like, he has that talking head and he, you know, he's like, I thought that went pretty well. And it's raining all around him and he's clearly in a bad situation, but he's positive. Right. And that's, you know, we're, we're, we're adjusting the character in that, in that situation. That moment where he reveals, like sticks his head out of the pit back in like a gopher is just a really, really funny sight. Yeah. And it's a precursor to a lot of physical gags you would do, right? I mean, you've seen him on like roller skates, you see him jumping over a counter, you see him falling down, you see so yeah, that he was he got he he does his own stunts. So yeah, there was a there was a lot of that, which is uh uh, good and 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 you know I think they are even trying to mark you know I say they we were even trying to make Mark more likable right it's like in this one he's just more normal he's just kind of a straight man he's no longer like trying to sleep with everybody so I think it's just kind of adjusting these characters and turning the dial on them to to make the show work and and find the tone you know something I actually wanted to quickly call out as we are talking about Andy's character. You know, we've discussed the first six episodes, the show was figuring itself out. The writing staff, the actors, everyone was figuring out what this show was going to be. But one of the original intentions of the series by Greg and Mike was for Andy and for Chris Pratt uh, to only be on the show for the first six episodes. Right. Andy was supposed to help introduce Anne and the pit in this comic way, but then leave. And so what became so clear to everybody was that not just was Andy a great character, but Chris Pratt is this, uh, you know, once in a generation comic talent. And so when he stayed on as a series regular, I actually think that these first few episodes of the season of the second season is the writing staff figuring out, OK, then who is Andy going to be if not for, uh, you know, a short storyline? What is his character going to be? What will his uh comic traits and his failings and his interesting quality is going to be. And so you see so much of Andy in these first few episodes because it was a chance now to really expand on his character. So I I always love that about the beginning of the season. I just wanted to call that out to you guys right here. The editing is a comedy masterclass in in Parks and Recreation. But you can see in this episode that they're starting to learn some of the lessons that really make it hilarious. Like there's um, a jump cut sequence in the middle of the talent show bit in um, in the uh, in the beauty pageant. And so here you can imagine the setup is you're going to have the old lady contestant who's clearly old. She's old, old. And you're like, what the hell? And this, and she's going to sing um, uh, the Donna Summer song. It's so good. It's yes. so good. It's so good. Like, so that's funny. Okay. I told it everybody, right. That's funny. But what you don't do is like, and now the old contestant will show you her talent. And then she, you don't know what she's going to do. She stands up, you know, what's going to happen. And she clears her throat and she starts to sing this. That's not how this, how it's done on parks and recreation out of nowhere. You cut into not even the beginning, the, in the middle of one of the, Ooh, it's so good. It's so good. 
it's like a it's like a math jigsaw puzzle scientific bit of of editing when you think about how that could have been shot could have been edited and then how it was edited and it's genius yes i'm glad you brought up that specific moment because to me that is a great example of everything coming into place and they say they say a a movie or a show is, is is made three times essentially it's made in the writing it's made in the shooting when you're on set and then it's made again in the editing room and they all have to work in concert, and each one can be additive, or each one can be subtractive or <laughs> deleterious to the process, right? So in yep. that specific case, when I hear that song, I think of Katie Dipple, because she would always pitch someone singing that song. I remember her pitching that and writing it into the script, and wouldn't it be funny if you see all these young women, and then you just see an older lady singing this song out of nowhere. You don't even see her beforehand, right? You, it's surprising, and it's funny, and that's that's what comedy is, right? It, it's, it's, it's something unexpected, and, and so I'm glad you flagged that moment. Comedy is so subjective, as we all know, and, and people talk about what smart comedy is or isn't. What you just described is smart comedy because there is no setup. Like, this is just joke, and it, the setup is left up to the audience to be smart enough to figure out. Yeah, I think it's always a fundamental respect for the audience and the audience's intelligence and the audience getting something unexpected. And I do remember, you know, I, look, I think the people making the show, you know, Mike and Greg and, and all the actors were really smart people. But I do think that sometimes they got annoyed. Like, certainly Mike got annoyed. I think we were on the cover of Entertainment Weekly. You know, all you guys were on the cover, you know, the cast of the show. And it said, the smartest comedy on television. And Mike was like, it would be nice if it said the funniest comedy or the best comedy, right? Because we don't want people to think, like, you got to have a PhD to watch the show. But, you know, I, I agree with you in the sense that it doesn't pander, right? It's not trying to pander. It's not trying to go lowest common denominator. And, and, and I think that's a common thread through a lot of the stuff that Mike has worked on and, and hopefully that I've worked on as well. Yeah, my favorite thing about I remember shooting that Entertainment Weekly cover is is <laughs> we do all these different photos and the headline that they clearly want to use and did is the smartest comedy on television and yet the picture they use is all of us with a gigantic stuffed bear in the background for no reason. <laughs> yeah, that was one of them and then the other one was you guys like in a in a jeep or something like and remember that one like that was on the covers like you guys were wearing like safari outfits or something I don't know. This we were in the desert and I was doing a parody of Franco and two and a half hours or three hundred and a half days where we got his arm caught in a rock and had sawed off. Oh, remember that yeah, movie? That yeah, was like, remember that one? The, 127 hours. Yeah. 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 That was like the, that was big movie at the moment. So if you ever look at that entertainment weekly and look it up, I'm in James Franco's exact wardrobe. How strange with little, with little tiny rocks, tiny ones on top of my arm. Do you ever do a photo shoot and you look at what the photographer wants you to do and you're like, I'm not going to do that because <laughs> I think they come up with weird ideas. Because like, I feel like they always, to me, not like I've done nearly as many photo shoots as you have, but I, I often feel like it seems like they're doing this photo shoot for you, not for, not for me. You're doing, you want to add something weird to your portfolio. You don't want to do something normal. Oh, all the time. And, and I also find that they, um, with quote-unquote comedy oh, the worst. material the worst. is the, the, the worst. Yeah, can you wear like a, 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 a fake glasses with a, with a fake nose or like hold up a banana to your ear and pretend it's a telephone like that? That kind of shit? Like. It's the worst. I mean, even Annie Leibovitz, who's one of the greatest photographers in the world and, and one of my personal favorites, ha, you know, has a picture of Ellen DeGeneres and, wait for it, clown shoes and a clown outfit. And of course, she's... The sad clown, yeah, there you because go. you know, there's that's only one. There's only one, one type. 
All clowns are actually sad. We know that. Oh, man. The curse of the comedy performer, right? You, 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 like the, the respect you want to get. It's like they want to put you in this box and put you, put you in funny clothes, goofy glasses, all that stuff. But that, I think that's why a lot of, a lot of comedians, like, they want to do like their serious movie. I literally think that's to avoid photo shoots like that. <laughs> they want to do something serious. That's the only reason they do it. I was doing some photo shoot for the, the Hollywood Reporter, some roundtable thing for, for showrunners or something. And um, they, we walked into this room and it was... It looked like the set of Saved by the Bell in 1989. It was all pastel, you know, giant foam shapes and like, you know, pinks and light greens, seafoam greens and light blues and, and like a checkerboard floor. And we, all of us were kind of like, wait, what is this? And it was like, you know, it was like Bill Hader and Gerard Carmichael, Dave Mandel. And, and, and at one point, Hader was so funny. He's like, uh, you want me to sit on this giant ball? Like it's just like the, 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 the funny, like and he, like you can pull up the photos of him. He's like he's like has his head in like a circle. I'm like that's what they made us. Do. We just we did it, but it's like again, like you know, they're just trying to do their jobs and do something interesting. But it's certainly Hater was so funny. He's like I don't know I, what is this. He was so because he doesn't care, but it was very funny. Man. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, you want to take a step inside the Pawnee Town Hall? Where are we doing the town hall today? We want to do it in the gym? You want to do it in the pool? Where do you want to do it? The pool? I don't know. I, I, no, I think we should do it. Um, it's, it's hot out today as we're recording this. So I think we should do it at the band shell. Oh, that's outdoor nice. Outdoor at the band wow, shell. Wow, that's, that's lovely. That's like a great place for a town hall. It might encourage too many people to come and ask questions that I don't want to answer. <laughs> that's right. Nico from New Jersey. This question is kind of for both of us. What season of Parks and Rec was the most fun to make and why? Which one was the trickiest? Thank you, Nico, for the question. Mm. You want to lead that one off? I will. Um, so a lot of thoughts, a lot of thoughts. Uh, you know, for, for as far as the most fun to make, I feel like the process might not have been the most fun, but the one, it's to me, it's between two and three um, because we were finding our groove, and like that's when the show, to me, there, to me, there's a sweet spot in a show, uh, certainly coming from it from a writing perspective and probably from a performer's perspective as well. You know, you tell me. But when you're first starting out, you're finding your footing. You're finding who the characters are. You're discovering who they are. There's, there's a joy in that. But then at a certain point, you reach, to me, like a, a, a nice plateau where you know who they are and you're hitting on their jokes. It's like, oh, I get it. Ron Swanson is the manliest guy in the world. So that's fun. Then you do that for a while and then if you're on a show like this, which has to run many, many seasons, or, or if you're lucky enough to run many, many seasons, you, you get, you're confronted with a choice. Do I either repeat the same jokes and stories over and over again, or do I change the characters completely and make them unrecognizable? And that's when it gets difficult, right? That's when it becomes, I think there's, again, some meme on the internet where it's like season one character is a normal, season two is like a little bit more interesting, and then season 
nine, it's like, it's a cartoon, right? It's like, you don't know. It's Ron Swanson is just, you know, waking up and eating a whole cow or something, right? You just don't like, yeah. how many jokes can we do well bacon, right? How many jokes can we like, he's We get it, he's manly, but but you're in that position, right? You've done a hundred stories and people keep in mind, like sometimes we have A, B, and C stories on each episode. So that might be, you might be on story number 370, right? It's not even 120. It's a 300 stories with these characters. Anyway, I'm going to say season three. That that includes the the Harvest Festival arc. That that's you guys, uh, you know, Chris and Ben joining the show. Uh, you and Adam, and and that's when it felt like, man, this is really hitting on all cylinders. And and and, and so yeah, that was. And I'll, I'll answer. Why don't you answer that one, and I'll I'll do the other one. Which one was was the trickiest after you? The shooting schedule was unlike any I've ever been on. Like you you do six episodes and then you'd shut down for nine months and then you come back and do 320 in a row so you could shut down for another nine. It was like insane. So I never know what season was what <laughs> because of that. So, so, but but I, I will say that when we knew that it was going to be my last season and Rashida's last season, um, there was a such a like this great nostalgia and it was like senioritis it was like you'd graduated it was all f- fun and games and you were just enjoying every minute of everybody's company um because you knew this would you'd never have anything like this quite like this again that that's what that last season senior was. spring kind of it's just fun everyone having a good time a show that we felt like was working and we knew we saw the sort of we also saw the finish line in some ways, right? That was really helpful. And I always feel like that helps the writing as well as the, the performing. But yeah, and, and Rob's not joking. I mean, because of a variety of factors, some of which was Amy, you know, having kids and stuff, season two slash three ended up being 30 episodes in a row or something. It was so bizarre. It was so many episodes in a row. I, like that's not, it's an inhuman number of episodes to do in a row. Anyone who's working in the industry knows that, but, but, uh, but we got through it and, and I think we ended up with some really great creative stuff. I think as far as which one was the trickiest to me, you know, obviously season one is always tricky because you're building the world and you're building the characters and you're figuring out how your actors perform best. Um, it also, to me, gets a little tricky, as I said, later on in the run, but before the end. So to me, like the last season is kind of cool. It's like, you know, we're ending and like, you know, you're writing towards an end point. This is where we're going. This is. But if you don't know that, if you're, you know, I, I, people on long running shows like hey, season 12, like that to me starts getting hard. Where it's episode 17 of season 12. You're like, oh, my God. It's like, you know, like Chris <laughs> and Ron fight over a stapler or something. Like You're just trying to. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like we got to we got to make an episode. Right. We got to shoot on Monday. So we got to figure this out. So that but I will say this, you know, those later seasons that you were talking about, Rob, like one of the, the, the fun things for me was I, I started getting a little bit, uh, you know, Mike started trusting me to help run the room. So that was really exciting for me. So the later seasons, um, you know, Mike was working on Brooklyn a little bit and Brooklyn nine nine with, with Dan. And so Dan was gone. And and so I was helping to run the room with Donna Carey, who was another writer. And so me being able to, as a younger writer, getting able to sit at the keyboard and, 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 and make some decisions and sort of decide what goes in the script was, was really exciting for me. And I'm always grateful to Mike for that, uh, for that experience. Well, this was a great episode, and um, I, I thank you guys for downloading, listening. Make sure that you uh, subscribe to the show, and like I say, tell two friends about it, and uh, that math works out to be a lot of audience very, very, very quickly. They tell me. I don't know. I didn't go to Harvard. I, does that does that math make there's sense? There's still time. Uh, they're still accepting people. And uh, <laughs> we uh, give us high ratings. We need validation. 
And uh, I, that's the show. Thanks to producer Greg and producer Schulte. Goodbye for Pawnee. See you next week. This episode of Parks and Recollection is produced by Greg Levine and me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Alan Yang for Alan Yang Productions, Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Gina Batista, Paula Davis, and Britt Kahn are our talent bookers. The theme song is by Mouse Rat, a.k.a. Mark Rivers, with additional tracks composed by John Danik. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Parks and Recollection. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Stitcher.